This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the B Podcast Network, where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-age kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. It's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 148 of the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the B Podcast Network. When I first learned about the field of occupational therapy and when I first started collaborating with OTs in the school systems, I had a very superficial understanding of what the field entailed. In the school systems, it seemed like a lot of the referrals were focused on fine motor skills related to school tasks like pencil grip and writing. But when I started to learn more about sensory processing, I discovered that it's so much more than that. And I realized how important it is for other members of both school and clinical teams to understand each other's disciplines so they can support each other. And that's why I was so excited to talk with Maude LaRue in this episode. Maude is an occupational therapist and an international trainer on a wide variety of topics and also the director of her own online academy. She opened a total approach with her husband in September 2001. She specializes in sensory integration as it applies to functional activities of daily living, including the ability of any child to partake in their learning environment. She's presented workshops in multiple international locations, as well as in the U.S. nationwide. She's developed the developmental pathways model in reaching clients with different profiles with a wide array of diagnoses. She's well known for her work in sensory processing, autism spectrum disorders, reading and learning disorders, as well as attachment disorders. She serves on the board for ATTACH, an international organization involved in attachment and trauma-informed care. She is currently mobilizing an international group of occupational therapists to organize the influence of trauma-informed care in the occupational therapy field. Maude has published two books, 
the listening journey for children and our greatest allies. In this conversation, we discuss how we can bridge the gap between what's educationally relevant and a child's developmental level. We also got into a really in-depth conversation about the collaboration between private therapists and school teams, why relationships sometimes turn adversarial, but we also talk about what's possible when we do form strong partnerships. Maud also shares tips for helping parents understand the boundaries between school recommendations and home recommendations. And she shares some great examples of how she prepares her reports. So things like that are clear for parents so that it helps with the communication between her clinic and the school team. And then in the second part of the conversation, We talk about things like sensory integration, discrimination, and modulation, and how our nervous system supports motor, cognitive, and language development. We also talk about how important differential diagnosis is, especially when we're trying to figure out if the things that we're seeing externally are sensory issues, behavior issues, attention issues, or maybe something else. And then we wrap up by talking about the relationship between motor planning and executive functioning. Specifically, we talk about praxis, posture, motor planning, and how these factors impact our ability to engage in goal-directed behavior while we're sitting, reading, writing, or doing other daily tasks. Before I did this interview, I had the opportunity to read Our Greatest Allies, one of Maud's books, which is linked in the show notes. So I highly recommend it to get kind of an overview of what she does, as well as some of the topics that we cover in this episode. Before we get started, I wanted to talk about the School of Clinical Leadership, my program for related service providers that helps them put programming in place that supports students' executive functioning skills. One of the biggest themes in this conversation is the importance of collaboration between disciplines. And while we all have our individual area of expertise where we have a lot of knowledge that the other disciplines may not have, there is a lot of overlap. And one of the areas where we overlap the most is in the area of executive functioning. When it comes to supporting students' executive functioning, really it's like the glue that holds all of the disciplines together. And it's a great place where we can find common ground and work to support what other people are doing. Now, if you're on a team and you know that they could be better at working together collaboratively to support students across the day, as well as coaching and supporting teachers and parents, then this is a prime opportunity for you to emerge as a leader on your team and help that happen. But I know that that is no small task, and that's why I give you a framework to work off of in the School of Clinical Leadership. In the program, I teach you specific techniques that you can use to support executive functioning through tools like self-talk, building time perception, as well as structuring the environment so that you're providing opportunities for kids to engage in strategic planning. But in order to make this happen, we need to take a team approach, meaning that you as a clinician aren't just focused on what you do when you have students in front of you, you're also focusing on ways that you can support, coach, and train other people on the team. I show you how to make time for all of that and create a strategic plan for rolling it out in the School of Clinical Leadership. To learn more about how you can become a member, you can go to drkarendudekbrennan.com backslash clinical leadership. Now, please enjoy this conversation with Maude LaRue. Today, I am joined by Maude LaRue, an occupational therapist and the director of Maude LaRue Academy and A Total Approach. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. Well, you have so many different projects and things that you do. So let's just start off with having you share a little bit about your your background and what you're doing now. Well, 
I, first and foremost, I'm an occupational therapist and it's really who I am at heart. It's who I want to be. All the other things are fluff around yeah. <laughs> my profession as an OT, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we I, I trained, was raised, born, raised, trained, got married in South Africa, came over in 93, um, started the practice in 2001. And um, oh my goodness, what a ride. Yeah. What a ride it's been, you know, since 2000, we're open, what, 22 years now? Um, and in that process of time, there was so much satisfaction and dissatisfaction mm -hmm. because there were certain things that I just knew that I wasn't answering. And it frustrated me that kids were coming through my program and I could help them, but I couldn't help them all the way. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of learning ensued, a lot of different certifications and different pieces. And I don't want to talk too much about all of those pieces we went through, but it 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 brought me to a place where I designed my own assessment and intervention programs. And then in 2007, I started being asked to train others in those pieces and adjacent pieces. And the Mordoro Academy started in 2019, and here we are. Here we are. <laughs> well, um, like I said, uh, you're doing a lot of, I know that you have a lot of different disciplines that you work with as well. So in your practice, what disciplines do you, do you have? I know, again, a total approach, you're thinking about the whole, the whole child. So what disciplines do you work with within your practice? Hmm. We are mainly occupational therapists mm -hmm. and speech pathologists. Love my speeches. Okay. Just adore them. <laughs> Um, and then we work, we have floor time practitioners. Mm -hmm. so, um, so that's really the compilation. And then we, of course, we have a whole network of beautiful mm -hmm. other people like social workers and psychologists that we refer to and co-refer to regularly mm -hmm. and working in a team. Um, but yeah, money at the office, it's OT speech and floor time. Great. Yeah. So I know with, with OT and the things that you address specifically from, from your perspective, we've talked about how all these different disciplines really can support each other. Working in one area can really unlock things in another area, and you can really just have this nice collaboration. And you can kind of pull, one person can learn a little bit about somebody else's discipline and pull it in, but then the other person can kind of dive deep into that area. And in my work, when I was in the schools collaborating with OTs, it always seemed like, you know, like when people think, oh, I'm going to refer to the occupational therapist, it's, it's handwriting, like mm -hmm. it's fine motor, it's handwriting. And then sometimes people understood a little bit of the sensory piece, but it was just, okay, let, let them sit on a yoga ball or a wiggle seat or give them a fidget. And sure, some of that might be part of what you do, but I know it's, so much more than that. So when you're explaining to someone about occupational therapy and some of the things that you can do, how do you explain it to them? Anything, anything to do with occupational function. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the short one, right? Yeah. So yeah. In school, for the example that you're mentioning in school, right? In school, the educational system requires the child to be a student. Mm -hmm. So the occupation is a student. So right. it's kind of whatever they need in the school to be a student. And yes, there is a difference between educational occupational therapy services and clinical occupational therapy services. Mm -hmm. So my bent is towards the clinical piece where we are working on in a, in a different frame, like right. an educational, they will do what is relevant to education. And then of course, um, the the clinical will sort of take that a little bit further in getting additional work done, like in sensory um, integration certification mm -hmm. and all kinds of other types of modalities that you won't find in the school system. And it really confuses families sometimes with what we get in a clinical OT versus getting an educational OT. And I can understand that confusion. Yeah. In clinical OT, we look at the whole body, mm -hmm. the yeah. mind. The, the learning brain, the body brain, the nutritional brain, the interceptive brain, everything is connected. And we all know this. If my child can't read properly, he's feeling bad about himself. Every experience counts to an emotional experience, um, which is then, of course, what the, what the brain remembers and feels mm -hmm. about. So yeah. if you look at something, if I'm going to get this child to read, for instance, and he says, I hate to read, <laughs> yeah. right? I'm going to have to look at how can I intrinsically motivate him 
to get back to a place where reading can be an exploration of beautiful imagination for him again, right? So you have to look at everything from a double prong approach. Um, so clinically speaking, it's like the whole brain body approach, mm-hmm. educational approach. You will you will have a different definition, whatever is relevant for that child to be able to be a student, to mm-hmm. be able to function at school in an optimal capacity. Yeah. I think, you know, as we, and I have some questions about some specific terms that I think might be helpful and maybe giving people kind of a picture, but I think there's probably more of a middle ground where maybe you could pull some of the clinical into education. And I know that there's, there's tons of issues with staffing and funding, but I think that sometimes it seems like it's far removed from education, but if you don't have certain skills and you're not developmentally ready to do this thing over here, then again, how are you going to be able to hold a, hold a pencil correctly and sit up in a chair and write and all of those things? I think sometimes there might be maybe a middle ground where, yes, it, understanding that a school occupational therapist couldn't get into all the things that a, a clinical occupational therapist could do. And same thing happens with the other disciplines as well. But maybe there's some kind of a middle ground because I think it is educationally relevant, all of those things, because it's it's connected. So, yeah, I don't know the solution to that. <laughs> I don't know either. And it's true. It's true. And and we love to work with the school team. Mm-hmm. We truly enjoy the collaboration. Now, we're not always invited in because there is, you know, feelings there's emotions there's yeah there's this um we don't want an outsider to come in and tell us what to do and there's mm-hmm. all these little, little pieces that is so unfortunate you know yeah if we're open at the table we can do so much if we as clinical ot can support the educational ot and we can work together oh my goodness we can have a beautiful place of being it is true what you're talking about is that at heart we are developmentalists mm-hmm. and so what it is is that there's a certain development in the brain necessary in order to acquire a skill. And if there's a stage that was missing, a stage that wasn't um, uh, achieved in a good enough manner, not perfect, but a good enough manner, mm-hmm. it may prevent another skill from showing up, like in school, like executive functioning skills, like, mm-hmm. as you say, pencil grip, handwriting, um those things are necessary but is it always fine motor is it always the pencil grip or is it also that the body is missing some motor planning and praxis building blocks which comes much earlier in development than in the educational stage of our of our lives and so when we build these building blocks which is the work that i like to do is to kind of figure out where's the most original point of entry that i can get in there and get some more solid um, solid skill before I can move to the later skill that we would all like to see. Um, an educational OT is working on, I need this kid to write. I need mm-hmm. this kid to sit still in the, in the desk so that they can pay attention to the teacher, right? So there's a, there's a difference between looking at the developmental piece, which is clinical, and then the educational piece, which is almost like looking at what's the symptom and how can I relieve that symptom to give the child better access to school, mm-hmm. both of them extremely relevant. Imagine if we could meet more. Yeah. Imagine, imagine what we could do for for families if we could do that, and for teachers. Yeah. To support teachers to understand, you know, so many teachers, educators are sometimes in the classrooms where they're sitting with kids with five, six IEPs, and they're not necessarily trained mm-hmm. in um, in those in those arenas. How how much autistic training does some kids that teachers get for autism? How much training do they get that the reading specialist cannot get by because there's maybe only one reading specialist in a school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how much training are they getting by for ADHD, right? To understand oh, not different, not enough, <laughs> you know. So and so when we can come in and we can say, listen, this is the technique. This is something you could use. This is how you can decrease meltdowns in a classroom. That excites me. Because that's where it has to happen. That's where the kid needs to occupy himself, right? In my clinic, I can keep them safe, and which they are. They're safe. Mm-hmm. They're safe at our center. But it's helping them to feel safe at school 
so that they can have the best possible learning. That I think is where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. And it is really hard to communicate. If you're a private therapist, I have seen some interactions that could have been a good collaboration, just not go well. Maybe it's somebody sent an email and didn't, the the tone was inferred. It is really hard to, um, if you are the person writing a report and you have all these recommendations that you're intending to be helpful suggestions and conversation starters, if you have a parent who's really upset, that's like, you know, here's my ammunition for what you're supposed to be doing. And it's presented that way, then automatically the two therapists are kind of set up to butt heads when really it was, you know, one person trying to just be helpful. Whereas like I was a school therapist for 14 years and I would have loved to just have another professional to collaborate with and bounce ideas around or have somebody who could take here's what I can do in my sessions. And here's another person who can address things that I can't get to. That would have been amazing. And sometimes I did have situations like that, but I think that, um, you know, sometimes it's a communication issue and even the mode of communication with how we send emails and phone calls and write reports. I mean, it's, it, it can be very different if you've had a conversation with that therapist and you have a relationship and they're getting your report versus some person that they've never met before. And they're getting this really long detailed report, which, you know, in my experience, some of the clinical reports, I mean, they're just, there's so much detail to them. I mean, that's uh, with, (laughs) I remember I was, I was at my, it was my state conference for speech pathology. And there was an OT talking about sensory processing and just some of the the stuff that she got into, I was like, oh, wow, like, I kind of want to get my own sensory profile evaluated now. It's really <laughs> interesting because I had so many sensory things growing up and I just, I figured them out, but I'm, it's really interesting to pay attention to, um, you know, this thing over here, I feel uncomfortable and it's totally distracting me from doing this thing, this other thing over here where it True. makes sense. <laughs> But the, but I think, you know, I, I'm quite a believer that the buck starts here. Mm-hmm. So the, what we did very early on is that if we get, like in the U.S., we get an, an IEE, an independent education evaluation. Mm-hmm. So the school districts pay us to be the independent evaluator. And this is one of the reasons why the reports are sometimes longer to the schools. Yeah. Because have to be very careful how we dot our I's and cross our T's and make sure we can substantiate every um, part of the profile that we are postulating as part of this profile of the student. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we've done from the beginning is that we gave separate educational recommendations that Mm. supported the teachers for SDIs and the IEP and also supported the OT at school to not to feel like her area was being tread upon, mm-hmm. to do what's regularly part of that. And it's also part because I also worked in the school systems for a number of years and I understood that, you know, it's not always so easy to for to accept somebody else's recommendations. So mm-hmm. we try to be very sensitive. And then we give a separate sheet to the family that the school does not get that we call clinical recommendations. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't believe that the educational system must pay for every single clinical recommendation that's made for the child. The law requires for them to bring the child on par with the peers. They don't say to the optimal. Yep. Mm, That is a big point of confusion. (laughs) That's right. And I think there's a little piece there that we need to be responsible for and not overburden educational OTs or speech pathologists with undue harshness in terms of you should be doing this you should be doing that and this is what you should be doing and this is what we think i think we need to really be respectful to each other because Mm -hmm. we both have a beautiful place to play yeah the truth is the the kid needs both of us they do Um, you know because we need to bridge over into school otherwise what's the use of me working with them in the center so i need the educational ot to work with me um and i i want to be um respectful so we've yeah. always done that. We separate the clinical recommendations and we give the parent the message that some things you are responsible for. These are educational recommendations that the school 
would be it would be good if they looked at that yeah right and so and that's been a very um very successful endeavor even though even with that we have run into unfortunate situations i'll leave it oh, at that yeah. <laughs> yeah well and i know from you know being on the receiving end of those the reports of people who don't fully understand the schools oh man this one there was a situation where um let's just say that there was a message that got sent to somebody that wasn't supposed to get sent to them. That was, you know, it, and we saw what an outside person was saying about us at the school and it was not good. And they were, Mm -hmm. they were gearing the parent up to, for a fight, like the school's going to try to skimp on services and they're going to try to get out of things. And I've seen things go really, really poorly. And then or even just sometimes it's totally unintentional where they just haven't worked in a school and they haven't really understood what the school guidelines are. I just always appreciated it so much when there was a conversation and an understanding that the clinical world and private practice and what can be done in the school, like when there is when there is that mutual respect. I remember there was one, um, one speech pathologist that I worked with who was a uh, it had an expertise in cleft palate, which of course is medical and we could do some things in the school, but she was just so respectful and always like, I can't, I could never do your job. I could never work in a school. You work so hard. And it was just, yeah. it was nice to have somebody that respected yeah. me. And I think that sometimes parents don't understand because they see here is this public school I don't necessarily see my money going there, even though I'm paying taxes, but I am, sometimes you're paying and you're taking your child to this center. And so your perception of how you value it is different. And a lot of parents are like, well, this came from a doctor's office. So they must know more than this person over at the school. And I'm like, I have a lot of training. And I think that it's just, it is really important. And I, I appreciate that you do that, that you separate it because it's so needed or people who are in that world that have so much capacity to do all of these things that the school can't do for them to be helping the families like that. Cause that's another thing that is very difficult for school therapists is that they know that they should be supporting the families more and giving recommendations for home, but it's, it's hard, it's hard to do it. And so always appreciated when there can be somebody else. I wanted to take a quick break here and talk about the school of clinical leadership. I hope so far you've taken away how important it is for professionals to have good working relationships. And if you are a therapist or even a teacher who is responsible for intervention, it's so important that you not just know how to work with students, but also how to mentor others and support other people who are working with your students. Many of the behavior, social, and academic issues that come up can be tied back to issues with executive functioning. And we all play a very unique role in supporting those skills. I give you a framework for getting your team on board, as well as bolstering your own clinical skills in the School of Clinical Leadership. So in the program, I help you build a strategic plan that's going to help you put all of the pieces in place. To learn more about the program, you can go to drkarendudekbrandon.com backslash clinical leadership. Now let's get back to the interview. So I wanted to ask some specific, some things about occupational therapy specifically and how the sensory piece plays into some of these other things that we might consider language skills, cognitive skills, academic skills, just how it relates. So I thought maybe there, we could even just clarify some terms and how they impact other things. I mean, just maybe even starting off with sensory integration versus modulation and how those impact some of those other skills. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's a very important question. And there's still, even amongst OTs, there are still some confusion around mm-hmm. those terms, right? And there are different nosologies out there. So it depends also on who you sort of take to, right? Yeah. So we tend to, at our center, talk about an over um, arching umbrella term of sensory processing. Mm-hmm. Right? And so probably I got that word from Lucy Miller, who was mm-hmm. one of the foremost um, researchers in SI 
um, in in the past, you know, three decades. So, um, so century processing is the overarching term, and then we have these two spokes: the one called sensory discrimination, and mm. the other one sensory modulation. And so the modulation piece is the piece that everybody is more familiar with, even though they don't exactly maybe know what exactly they're looking at. Mm-hmm. But when we see kids over aroused into meltdowns and upsets and, you know, you see them that their sensory systems are so out of control that it causes quote unquote behaviors. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it basically is, it's almost like when you're driving a car. Yeah. So when you put your foot on the gas, and you accelerate the car, right? Then you're using your sympathetic arousal system. You got to go, 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 go now, right? Mm-hmm. You also know that if you keep putting your foot down, there's going to be a problem down the road and you're going to run out of control. So you lift your foot from the gas and that is your parasympathetic system when you retreat from the gas. So the, the balance between putting my foot on the gas and lifting it from the gas right? That is my balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic. Mm-hmm. And that keeps me within a window of what we call in sensory terms, we call it a just right balance, mm-hmm. but in mental health, they may call it window of tolerance. Yeah. So each sensory system, my auditory, my visual, my vestibular, each sensory system has their own threshold about what is actually their just right balance. So you may have a visual system that's under aroused and you need lots of visual stimulation, or you might have a vestibular system that's over aroused. So you need less movement, right? And so each system can have its own compilation of those thresholds. And it's basically, it's right inside of you. It's called the autonomic nervous system. And it's the balance between those two. Mm -hmm. The same sensory systems can also act on the sensory discrimination arm of the umbrella. And that is, can are you seeing the same square on the board as I'm seeing? Mm-hmm. You see the same that the house is in front of the tree or behind the tree. Can you discern how hard you must pick up a cup of coffee so you don't spill and you can grade the movement? Mm-hmm. So that the fine tunedness of the different sensory systems. That's when we talk about sensory discrimination. And so between those two, you can usually create a beautiful sensory profile. Yeah. So are there within, when I'm thinking about those two things and I'm, you know, I like to run and do yoga. So I, I can appreciate the whole, the idea of creating stability so that you can free up resources to do other things, because if you're trying so hard to stabilize yourself like yeah. even just with posture, then you're going to like for, for my running example, sometimes you use things that you're not supposed to be using and you overuse them and injure right. yourself and get yourself in a place that's not healthy because you don't have that stable foundation. Absolutely. So what kinds of things do you see? I mean, even just within that example there, maybe it's posture, maybe it's something else where here's this external symptom over here and people don't realize that it has to do with something relating to sensory processing. Let me give you a very common example. Okay. Johnny cannot sit still at a desk. Mm -hmm. So we can look at that and say, man, he really has a problem that he can't sit still at the desk. He really um, whenever I'm looking at him, he's looking out of the window, he's looking everywhere else. Oh, he must be distracted. Mm-hmm. I think you need to go to the doctor for an ADHD diagnosis. Right? Mm-hmm. So we're looking at the symptoms and we're saying, okay, so the, this either, these are some of the symptoms of ADHD. Impulsivity, distractedness, all of those pieces are part of that. I, as an OT, will look at that and say, hmm, so I wonder why Johnny's system needs to be distracted, but not the kid next to him. Mm-hmm. What could be the possible reason for that? So then I start investigating. And then I say, okay, well, maybe my postural control system, which you have referred to earlier, I have a flexion system that can crunch my tummy, and I have an extension system mm-hmm. that I have to keep my body up straight against gravity. 
the balance between my flexion and my extension keeps me in a nice position. I can sit in the chair and I can focus the six hours of the day that I'm at school. So if there is a weakness in either system, it upsets the amount of work that the other system has to do that's stronger, which then causes the child to feel discomfort much quicker mm -hmm. than, than that child next to him. That could be a possible origin of why he needs to start fidgeting and finding a different place to sit because I can't maintain the strength of what I need to stay there. Or I could go even further than that, deeper into early development and say, hmm, so it may just be that this child may be struggling with primitive reflexes that's not there. He may be struggling with a spinal gallant reflex, which is one of the ones that doesn't like tight belts or mm. tight around the waist, right? And it's got a lot to do also with um, your um, your system of urination and defecation and those those areas. And they don't like it when they press against the back of the chair. So whenever they get too much pressure in that area of their back, they need to move around and do these things. And that's only one reflex of multiple ones of them. Mm. It's with AT&R reflex, they like to sit with their arms on their in their heads on their arms and write like this, or they turn the entire page around and they write like this, right? Um, and it kind of looks a little bit distracting for those who are used to a kid sits in a desk in a proper way, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes I could even think, oh my goodness, hmm, every time they look out of the window, are they distracted by what's happening out of the window or are they still listening, but they can't look and listen to the teacher at the same time? that the timing between what she's showing and what she's saying is not reaching my prefrontal cortex at the same time. That could be a part of the problem too. Yeah. So in the first scenario, we would send them to for an ADHD diagnosis and they might go on stimulant medication. But that stimulant medication that the child is on will cause temporary relief no matter what the origin is, but it won't address what we can address in OT. I can work on those systems speeding up their processes. I can work on the timing between the auditory and the visual system. I can work on integrating those primitive reflexes. And we may not have an attention or distractedness issue. Mm -hmm. So it changes how we intervene. It also changes in the message we send to the child. Johnny, look at me. Mm -hmm. Look at me. And Johnny is so sick and tired of hearing his name all day right? Because Johnny is not looking at me. And Johnny says, okay, but when I look at you, I can't hear you. That's really interesting because the eye contact goals, like that was, that's, that's a thing that was um, obviously I think people are becoming more aware that that is not helpful to work on in that method of just constantly redirecting them, especially if they're able to listen to you without looking directly at you. So that's a big one. And I think that it's just the most obvious. And there's probably other things that would go along with the child's profile if they're if they don't have that integration. But that's just a very obvious one that people kind of fixated on. And you know the other piece of this is also is that sensory processing issues and we can talk about praxis too, you know. Yeah, I did want to get to that issues is so hidden. Mm -hmm. so, so what people see, they see the behavior and they say, oh, this child is rigid. This child's inflexible. This child, oh, he's just stubborn. Oh my goodness. He's so willful. Right. And yes, in some instances that may very well be true. Right. It's not an excuse for everything. Right. Mm -hmm. But in many instances, I want to ask, do we really honestly think that a child wants to be out of control? Do we honestly think that? Did the child born when he's a baby and say, I'm going to become a behavior problem one day? <laughs> I, I don't think so. So what I have to look for is why is it so difficult for them to show the behavior we want to show? And what makes it more confusing is that sensory processing has got nothing to do with the amount of intelligence that's available. Yeah. Oftentimes these kids are average intelligence and even above average intelligence and the family or the educator gives them a command and they completely understand what's expected and they don't do it. Mm -hmm. And then they get these labels. Well, they just don't follow through. 
they don't you know they don't behave well they don't do what's expected um but what we don't realize is that sensory processing doesn't change the fact that we understood the message but it changes how my body can respond to that message yeah so in sensory terms we call that the adaptive response so even though my intelligence can get it it's a very different pathway to have my body comply to what's expected mm-hmm. and therein lies a whole lot of mis um, information and confusion mm-hmm. yeah I wanted to get into that but it sounds like I mean the the idea of differential diagnosis and really doing a good evaluation is so important and I think with with ADHD specifically if you if a child doesn't have ADHD and they're medicated I think that that kind of adds to the misinformation about medication because sometimes they really do need that if they truly have ADHD. And then it's like this person had a bad experience with it because it wasn't the right thing for them. And then now it's, oh, that's meds don't work for that. That's it's bad. But really it was just not a thorough evaluation and what they needed. You know, a lot of the training on the academy is going through assessment batteries and really looking at clinical observations on how to assess in a much deeper level. Mm-hmm. And you know, the AOTA, our, our national body of occupational therapy, um, brought out something about 2018, and they call it um, Choosing Wisely, mm-hmm. where they brought a campaign that we as OTs need to be a far more discerning about the kind of tests that we use. So many times, especially coming back to the educational system, not that we want to pick on educational, we want mm-hmm. to support, right? Right. But, Look at that. If you, you you finish your college, you may have had an internship in pediatrics or not, but you're qualified so you can go and work in a school system. And if you're not trained in doing an, a, a thorough evaluation in a school system, you basically look at what the previous OT did before you. And you say, well, if it was good enough for her and everybody accepted it, of course, it's going to have to be good enough for me. Mm-hmm. So now you get an evaluation that whether it's Down syndrome, whether it's autism, whether it is developmental delay, whether it is sensory processing, whatever the diagnosis is, we use a visual perceptual test, we use a visual motor test, and we do a sensory profile. And everybody gets the same test. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a problem. That is a problem because it doesn't bring in the differential diagnosis. It doesn't bring in what it, what about this sensory piece supports the ADHD diagnosis? Mm-hmm. What about this sensory piece supports the autism diagnosis or not? Mm-hmm. Uh, because if we are not discerning enough in our evaluation and our assessment procedures, what are we doing with intervention? Mm-hmm. Because your intervention must be driven from the evaluation. And if your evaluation is not discerning enough for that exact individual profile who says that you're going to be starting intervention at the point that you should mm-hmm. are you going to be wasting time in the first two months of therapy just getting to know the child and getting to know what 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 kicks and what doesn't kick um or are we going to start targeted interventions from the get-go and say this is where we're going to go because this is what we need to to get into the right space yeah for that child. this is a very very big piece of um, a message that, you know, you're, you're hitting a hot button for me there when you're talking about assessment. Yeah. Um, we need to be a far more discerning because we can do so much good, you know, so much good. I think that's a big place where people who are working in private practice can really support the schools. Because when I work with school therapists, a lot of times they don't have access to good tools Or the school is saying we need a standard score. And so with language and executive functioning, you can't boil that down to one score. And a lot of times they're being asked for that. And just the time factor of being able to do a thorough evaluation. And a lot of times you do have to kind of just take what the last therapist did and then evaluate as you're giving therapy. And it's, and sometimes good therapy can be diagnostic, but that, that evaluation piece is really hard. So, and that's where I think the partnership can be really helpful because if you have somebody that is able to do a really thorough evaluation that maybe you're not able to do, then, I mean, that's a great, that's a great partnership where you can work together and 
they can do something that you maybe don't have the capacity to do. And of course, caseload should be smaller in the schools too, so that the school therapist can do more of that. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> There's a lot of pieces there, but you know, clinical OTs, um, they, they, they create their own problems too, you know, because, mm-hmm. and, and me being part of them, because we get so hooked into the fact it's got to be the whole child. It's got to be the whole child. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the whole child will take so forever mm-hmm. that what's going to happen yeah. to the child in the meantime, in the meantime, there's going to be something to tie them over. Mm-hmm. So even though I want to remediate more than I want to accommodate, right? We need to help um, from what our evaluation says, help the educational OT with which accommodations can we put in place while the clinical OT may be doing the clinical work of remediation, mm-hmm. right? And and how beautiful is that not? Or yeah. is not that mm-hmm. good English language? Um, but that could be so awesome for us to do together because it's so in the purview of an educational OT to use accommodation, whereas in my purview is to do remediation, right? So we can get the nervous system to do what it's naturally supposed to be doing and um, and we could marry. Mm-hmm. Um, that's It's such a dream. But you know, you and I are talking about it today. I think more people are also talking. And so hopefully they are. we can have the hope and the dream that one day we'll just say, hey, what you got? Yeah. Let's help each other, you know? I know. That's, that's what I, and I think there are a lot of places where that is happening. I wanted to talk about Praxis though, because I, what I thought uh, when I was reading your book this last weekend, I talk a lot about executive functioning in the context of the linguistic planning and the, the visual imagery, but you talk about it in the context of motor planning as well and being able to integrate and plan like, here is this goal that I want to achieve and here are the things that I need to do in order to get there from a motor planning standpoint. So I'd love to have you talk a little bit about praxis and what it is and how it ties into things like that. And I'm not going to get too nerdy on you about brain neuroanatomy, right? But I'm, <laughs> you can get a little I'm, nerdy. <laughs> just underneath your beautiful thinking brain, you have an area here that's called the cerebellum. And what's so cool is that the last couple of years, well, maybe the last five, seven years, um, both speech language research and OT language started to see the overlap in the cerebellum between language pathways and also motor pathways, mm-hmm. which is exciting. As clinicians, I've always seen, I put a kid on a swing and he starts vocalizing more. Mm-hmm. I've always seen that. The vestibular system enhances that 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 connection to the voice and the need to utter um, speech, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but we didn't know what to call it until this kind of later research has come about. Um, so, And then we've kind of figured out that there's some kids who come to us with pragmatics of speech issues. And of mm-hmm. course, I have wonderful speech pathologists that I work with that train me and a lot of these terminology, but I can't do it as much justice as you probably can. So, help. <laughs> but um, so that this pragmatics of speech piece, which is kind of like a social um, application of language in a discourse format, mm-hmm. um, has got so many overlaps with what I'm treating with in the same child with something called dyspraxia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so dyspraxia is the way that the brain tells the body how to move in a certain sequence, in a certain timed way, and then gives the body feedback. So next time when I do it again, I can do it easier. Mm-hmm. And the more I do something, the more automatic it becomes, right? So that when you're talking earlier about having automaticity so that I can free my mind up for other pieces, that's what you want to see. And so the same thing happens in language. If you do the basics of language and you you learn that there's a verb and there's a noun and you this is the way you put the sentence together and this is going to be your syntax and that sequential ordering that has the same sequential ordering that we're using in body, right? The, the overlap there. If you do that, then basically you can automatically speak without thinking, oh, I better put a noun in there now. Mm-hmm. You, you just don't do that. You just speak yeah. so beautifully. And so... That piece is what so often overlaps between OT and speech. And so praxis is a real cool deal. I have not really seen a child with um, an ADHD diagnosis that doesn't also have troubles with problem-solving praxis, initiation of a task, and trouble with executive functions like timing. Mm-hmm. Very linked From a practice. motor standpoint? 
are. Okay. And, and you can see that when you when you test them for timing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so many, I think Babib, was it Babib, that did research in the 90s and saw that 70% of dyslexics also have a corresponding dyspraxia. Mm-hmm. So we certainly see the truth of that, you know, when we when we work with reading and writing disorders. Um, and the overlap between if if I my decoding skill alone in writing, right, which is by the research more left brain activity, bronchus mm-hmm. area. So you you have to see the letter and then you have to sound out the letter almost within five to twenty milliseconds apart from each other. So in order to decode efficiently. It's it's what you see and it's what you sound out in phonology, right? Mm-hmm. So the timing between the two is a pristine issue. Well, that's the same timing I'm working on when I'm working in praxis and I'm putting the visual and auditory system together and timing. Mm-hmm. Goodness, I can go on and on and on. And, I want and the writing that. aspect too. That's why with, you know, everybody's like, we got to go digital and just taking away the physical act oh. of writing is is very concerning to me because that is... There is something neurologically that happens when you write written symbols and you're thinking about them. And this is research. Okay. The research says that when you write, you're lighting up far more different networks in the brain than when you type. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in terms of integration, more integrative. Yeah. And especially cursive writing, which is a whole different other discussion because a lot of schools are now omitting cursive writing. I know. But cursive is said to be far more expedient for the fluent thinking writing process than typing is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's also by the research, right? So yeah. the the overlap, you know, so when a child can't write enough to take notes, of course we can give him an iPad. Of course we can give him something else to type. Again, you accommodate, mm-hmm. right? But not at the cost of the writing. I still ask for some kind of accommodation that there's a 10-minute writing block every day where they practice physical writing, not only because you want to get to writing and signing your checks. Well, I'm not going to sign checks for very much longer, I don't think. But, but there's there's but other reasons to write. There's other, you know, note-taking, yeah. just be taking a note when you're in a restaurant and you don't have your iPad with you. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's so many things that you can do if you can write. But just the fact that that 15 minutes of writing every day that you're doing for that piece is also setting up integration of the nervous system networks. Mm -hmm. So you're taking away a very big part of why the child can't write in the first place. And that's neural integration. So we mustn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We do want the advances of new technology. I like every single time that we can give a child a new leash on life because there is technology that we can use but it's using it smartly. It's not using it at the cost of something else. If I'm going to use a child full of visual schedules and visual planners and visual stimuli because my children are visual learners, are we doing that at the cost of the auditory system? Mm-hmm. We, yeah. have to, we have to think about it. Um, it's, it's the balance between the systems that we are really wanting, not omitting one for the sake of another. We are strength-based and you use the strengths to work with the child. But if you keep not focusing on the weaker areas, you are increasing the disparity that eventually will show up in executive functioning skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can even just think about with, with writing and just what it does just to your, your thoughts. Like if I have something I'm trying to write and I want to do an outline and I feel stuck, I can't type it. Like I don't, I don't start there. I mean, yeah, I probably could if I sat there long enough, but I always go to writing and, and I don't know, maybe that's habitual, but for me, it just, it, I feel more, what's the word? Organized, Um, organized, activated. Mm. That's the word I was looking for. Okay. (laughs) Maybe that's just me, but I'm sure there's something to it. There's more of you involved in the process. Uh Uh-huh. You know, there's more of you. And this is why it's so, you know, years ago, you were saying earlier, we're getting all the handwriting referrals, right? Mm-hmm. And so in, in the beginning of my clinical journey, I was like, oh, not another handwriting referral, mm-hmm. right? Because that's that like the R for speech pathologist is probably <laughs> handwriting for OT. Maybe it's the same for, oh, is that your I, version of, of the R right. referral? 
is that all you think we can do right yeah <laughs> you know um but um but really i've learned to celebrate it i've learned to really celebrate it because i'm using that as an as a can i say a an informational opportunity Absolutely. to describe mm-hmm. all of At the least they thought of you spoke. that's right mm-hmm. if you think about just writing an essay right when you write an essay you're using at least 11 of your 12 cranial nerves on in the, on the each side of your brain. It is totally integrative, mm-hmm. which is also why kids don't like it if they don't have the integration. It's mm. when you if you're focusing on just let's write the letters, you, you know, that's one area. Of course, we need to do that. But if you're not focusing on how does the eye see the letter? Or is both eyes focusing on it at the same time? When I'm pointing at a letter, how do I know that the child is not looking at the letter next to my finger or next to my pen? Mm-hmm. Because the midline is shifted if you're not using both eyes together. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. How do I how do I know? And so that would make it extremely uncomfortable for kids. That I hate to write. I hate to read. Um, but it's 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 sometimes it's not the child that's the issue. It's us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, we, if we don't have a good grip on what is exactly needed how much must go into left to right writing think about syntax think about language think about spelling think about capitals think about end marks think about my thought think about my theme think think about crossing the midline in the, in the middle of the page oh my goodness that's only to begin with everything you have to do with a writing an essay mm-hmm. but if you can do it huge integration mm-hmm yeah, I think it, it's it's useful too to understand. I always explain it like a Venn diagram where here's my discipline, here's your discipline, but here's where they can overlap a little bit where there might be things that I could pull into my session. I know that there's from a sensory standpoint to help facilitate things and get kids ready to learn to do some yeah. of those things that are linguistic and language based. And vice versa, like, how does this translate over to, I mean, I could even think about when you're, when you're playing sports where, you know, there's, there's motor planning involved, but the coach also has to to sit there and describe the motor movement to get everybody in board on board and moving in the right direction. So you've got to have that, that, you know, the integration of both of those things or, or the pairing it's, you know, it's called different things. There's, there's the visual and the, um, the motor and the auditory and all That's of right. it, all the That's things. Right. <laughs> That's right. And this, and this makes it so hard for the struggling learner, you know, because the struggling learner is always, I mean, intelligence are often in place, but they mm-hmm. look at the other kids in the classroom and they know that, boy, that one can read fast. Oh, you know, I, I hope the teacher doesn't ask me to read because I can't read like that, right? Mm-hmm. They're looking at the other kids. They don't know what they're fighting. They don't know that their body is responding differently than the kid next to them. They only have gotten one body to to feel and to respond. And so they just think there's something wrong with them. Why can't I read like that? I must be quote unquote dumb. Oh my goodness. It's sad. Yeah. reading out loud probably in the scanning with all the motor planning i would imagine there's a ton of information there i mean there's so much motor planning involved in just the act of reading we're not even picking up the fingers to write Mm -hmm. um it's it's incredible we have a um we have a a computer-based program that we use in our office and so we didn't even touch the hand for writing okay that's computer-based so it's basically using the mouse Mm -hmm. so we did a handwriting pre-test sample and then two weeks after the program was done we did a post-test sample handwriting improved 30 percent without touching a pencil Mm, because we were working on how the pathways in the brains was correlating the visual and the auditory system Mm -hmm. yeah And, and yes that's not please everybody that's listening that's not science it's a very small sample of nine kids in one center in the u.s so Mm -hmm. it's not science what i'm saying to you Mm-hmm. But it was very interesting information for me to see that. And of course, using that program with multiple kids after that, that first little pilot that we did, I usually pilot new programs before I put it out there. 
So this was a pilot. Mm -hmm. um, it was very interesting for me to see that and such a confirmation how much the pathways in the brain actually has to do with the writing. And I didn't even physically touch a pencil to write. Mm -hmm. How much it improved, right? Yeah. So it's the brain is marvelous. Okay. We, we are not tapping into half of what the brain can do. I think we yeah. can do so much. We can. And you know, with, with what you just said there, if, if right, if they're not writing because writing is so hard and now you found a way for them to improve writing enough that they want to do it. Then you know, there's that, the whole idea of the Matthew effect, you yeah. won't, you won't do it if it's so miserable that you That's don't right. want to do it. And now you can actually create a situation where you can practice the skill and get better. And That's same right. thing, you know, I talk about it within the context of reading and vocabulary, but I'm sure that there's lots of, lots of motor planning examples as well. I know we're getting to the top of the hour and you have lots of places where people can go to learn more about what you do. Can you tell us a little bit about where people can connect with you and some of the resources you offer? Um, the, um, well, my email is maud, M-A-U-D-E at maudlerue.com. Okay. It's always a good way. You know, it's a, I do answer my emails more regularly than my texts. I will say that <laughs> I'm not a fond one person of the cell phone. I take it with me when I want to call my husband, but anyway, so there, but I think my website is probably um, going to be helpful. Okay. So that my center website is a total approach.com. Um, a don't forget the a, a total approach.com. And then my online Academy for professionals and parents is modlerude.com. Great. Um, so there's all kinds of information there. And I always love to hear what people would like to know more about because then mm -hmm. I create new courses for that. Yeah. I think a big one is people want to understand how they can use, how they can pull things that will support sensory processing into what they're doing. And then I'm sure that there are some people that want to take a deep dive and learn even more than that, depending on what well, setting they're and I, in. And I have a YouTube channel. Oh, so great. I, I just we'll recently started on August. So I'm still kind of like, what's this going to do? But um, <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a YouTube channel, Maud LaRue. Just search for that. And then okay. what I want to do with that is I want to give information away freely. Mm -hmm. So I really try to respond to what comments are. And then I try and create a YouTube on that. And we post almost every Friday. Mm -hmm. And um, and so this is, this is a way for people just to get some questions answered that they don't want to maybe pay a professional for, mm -hmm. or they, they just want to have a quick answer and they don't want to do a consultation. Mm -hmm. um, that's the place that I would go probably for if that's a need that may be out there. Yeah. Well, I think sometimes the free information can help you figure out when it is time for a consultation or who to talk to. That's I mean, right. people often don't know who they can go to for help, especially the parents when there's so much information out there with all these diagnoses that require multiple professionals. So I think that will be really helpful. So, well, thank you so much for being here with me today. Well, you know, I, I think we can talk. For I know. <laughs> as I was talking about stuff, I'm like, oh, we can talk about this. We can talk about that. I know. Lovely to meet somebody with a kindred spirit about the work that we do. So I thank you for what you're doing. Yeah, I thank you as well. And hopefully we'll have more conversations to come. We can have that for sure. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check the show notes for all the places you can go to connect with Maud and learn more about her work. And to learn more about the School of Clinical Leadership, my program for related service providers who want to learn how to collaborate more effectively as a team when supporting students' executive functioning. This will be extremely important for you if you want to both bolster your ability to support students' executive functioning in your direct therapy sessions, as well as get your team working together more effectively. To learn more about the program, you can go to drkarendudekbrandon.com backslash clinical leadership. If you found this 
episode useful, please share it with your friends or leave me a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or you have a suggestion for a guest, please email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE.